Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive of rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I looked at in the mirror and I couldn't see my reflection, but my vision was still intact. And so I just, uh, I tried to make a noise, but nothing came out. I just thought maybe I was having a bad dream and I went back to bed. Her mouth was affected and I, you know, because she was so young, I just, you know, didn't, you know, stroke did not cross my mind. Being in Tanzania, at the beginning I was in a wheelchair and people would just stare at me. Also, there was no treatment for my mental state um, because uh, they said that therapy is not the African way. It really affects your emotional side because you lose your identity and you lose your confidence. It's the hidden disability that people don't see. Kind of the emotional part. I- as a carer, I, by far, I find that that's the hardest part to support. You know, even with a you know a good network of friends, it can still be a you know at times a pretty lonely, like tricky place. You know, just every day I just think my lucky stars how to have him in my life. I don't know where I would be without him. Hello and welcome to On a Good Day with me, Elizabeth Callahan, and me, Julia Ajayi. This is the podcast which looks at brain injury and its impact on all involved. Today, we are delighted to welcome Joy Alley and Ross Methvin to the podcast to tell us their stories. Joy is a successful lawyer with her own practice and back two and a half years ago, she was in Tanzania when she suffered a stroke at the age of 42. Now, along with Ross's help, Joy is fighting back with obvious grit and determination. An inspirational woman we connected on Instagram and I loved how she was embracing her life post-stroke. Ross has been her main supporter since her stroke. So we're really looking forward to hearing from both of you and more about your stories. Um, Joy, if I can start with you, and if you could tell us a bit about what your life was like before your stroke. It was very fast-paced, um, and especially during the pandemic, because, of course, during that time, a lot of businesses were struggling. They didn't know what to do. And so us lawyers, we were, we were all still also scrambling to try and think how we can serve our clients best. And so I was under a lot of pressure, and it was very stressful. I mean, the last 17 years were actually quite stressful for me in general. So I don't know if that has contributed to my stroke or something. That's what I think. Do you, do you think it did, that the, the stress of your lifestyle? I think so, because um, I mean, I tried to be healthy and I used to work out a lot, but I didn't get enough sleep. And I was always like 
always like trying my best in everything. I always had to make sure that I was on top of the game, uh, doing very well, and just basically, um, I was I was very much a people pleaser, and that can sometimes, and also a perfectionist, so that can really take up a lot of your time and effort as well. That didn't really help me. And you were running the company, Joyce, yes, your I, company. Yes, I started it. Um, it's now uh, seven years. I studied seven years ago before I was a lawyer for like 12 years in two different law firms. Then I decided to go on my own. This was after my mother passed away. And the sad thing is I thought that it would actually be better for me starting my own firm, but I didn't realize that it was actually much worse. All the responsibility of everything came to you. There's actually less law and more of the admin stuff and that I didn't really enjoy at all. And so in a way I was kind of like wondering... (laughs) Why did I end up like this? I should have just gone back and continued to be a lawyer. But the problem is, um, because of the nature of who I am, I ended up getting a lot of uh, a lot of assignments. So that they always, I always used to get so much compared to others, and that was too much for me sometimes. So you had no underlying health issues, um, and I and I believe you had a series of mini strokes yes, prior, which was misdiagnosed as vertigo yeah um so so tell us what happened you know back in september of 2020 on 17th of september my firm actually celebrated their fifth anniversary and 10 days later we decided that we were going to go to one of the islands nearby to celebrate this uh milestone and um so that evening i woke up at like 4 a.m and I went to the bathroom and um, I looked at in the mirror and I couldn't see my reflection, but my vision was still intact. And so I just, uh, I tried to make a noise, but nothing came out. I just thought maybe I was having a bad dream and I went back to bed. The next morning, Ross obviously tried to wake me up because we had to get ready. And then I just didn't want to wake up and tried to, to, to talk to me. And I think you said it was basically gibberish. Or speaking. Yeah, I, f- I found I was trying to wake Joy up to um, get ourselves to to go to the island, and yeah, she just wasn't making sense. And she she had, you know, the, her her mouth was affected, and I, you know, because she was so young, I just, you know, didn't, you know, stroke did not cross my mind. I actually thought initially it was maybe a, an allergic reaction. That's kind of what it what it looked and sounded a little bit like. So that was my initial reaction because yeah, I was getting no sense from her um, at all. Um, and it was a bit scary being in a foreign country with that happening. <laughs> Incredibly scary. I can completely understand that, Ross, having been in a similar situation myself. And I think also you've really highlighted the fact that, um, you know, many people don't understand that stroke can happen in someone so young and fit. Yeah, mm. absolutely. You know, I, I think I did know you know quite quickly that it probably was a stroke but even then when you know I I kind of knew that that's what it was because I you know I have known people that have had strokes previously just because Joy was so young with you know no underlying health conditions I still couldn't accept and you know in those first few hours that that's actually what it was it just made no sense to me at all. So what happened in those first few hours after you realized that you couldn't wake Joy? Yeah, so the so what I managed to do is get her into the the car, and not far from Joy's apartment, there's a 
um, a, a health clinic that's attached to one of the international schools. So it's quite a well-run international clinic that, um, you know, most of the, I guess, the Westerners in Dar es Salaam tend to use, particularly in that area. And we got there and there was two nurses that were uh, on shift, but the, the on-call doctor wasn't there, so they, they called him. Um, and then time kind of went by, got to about half an hour, and the nurse, and there's still no sign of this doctor. So I think it was one of the nurses said, you know, sorry, I don't know where the doctor is. I think you should take Joy somewhere else. So, and by that stage, you know, I think it probably sunk in that what was really going on. So um, managed to get Joy back into the car and then um, a, a very um, high speed drove into the centre of Dar es Salaam with, you know, indicator lights flashing, just going all straight through the middle of the traffic and got to the the sort of the big main private hospital in the center of um Dar es Salaam um and that's where the, you know they did have an emergency department and i have to say the acute care there was was pretty good you know they very quickly ascertained what was going on yes it was a stroke and they administered you know some of the medicines that you um tend to administer to people to try and you know break down any clots that kind of stuff and you know put it through the right kind of scans but that that's when it when it i guess for me when those medics confirmed it was a stroke that was when it was like but you know it began to dawn on me what were you know what that meant for for joy for both of us for you know what you know i kind of started immediately facing into you know looking up google on my phone you know what is a stroke stroke recovery you know stroke symptoms and you know all all the kind of things that you uh just my mind just began to race really I remember I kept saying, I don't know what, um, I'm sorry, what did I say? I don't, I don't know what I, happened. Yeah, you kept repeating, I don't know what happened. Yeah. It was almost apologetically, like, I don't yeah. know what happened. I don't know what happened. How long were you unconscious for? Yeah. I was never unconscious. No, even when I, so I, Joy, I think, recognised herself around about 4am when she looked in the bathroom mirror, that that was probably the stroke happening then. Then I went to wake her around oh, about... 7 30 8 a.m um and from then on like going to the, the first clinic then on to the hospital you know joy joy was uh co- certainly conscious but yeah a, maybe a little bit confused and bewildered and obviously mm-hmm. not really able to communicate and then what kind of medical care and sort of rehab or did you receive at that hospital well, I, again, you know, the acute care in the emergency room was good, but then everything began to deteriorate slightly. So, you know, Joy was sent up to the ward and, you know, she was really struggling to swallow. But by this stage, it was maybe early afternoon, um, she was beginning to get quite hungry. So we managed to get them to bring some food and they brought they brought a plate of undercooked broccoli and swordfish on the bone for Joy to eat, which, you know, I probably can't think of anything worse to give to somebody who's just had a stroke and is having problems swallowing. So um, after a bit of back and forth, you know, another couple of hours, they brought some, I think it was porridge, but she was still struggling to to, to eat that. So then they decided to put a tube, uh, um, a feeding tube into her. Um, but like, you know, that was just a real battle getting that done. Um, I think physio started quite quickly as well. Yes, we started the next day. And um, it's funny because... Um, um, when the eating happened, I just couldn't eat, and um, the late the lady who brought the food just didn't understand that I was uh, having problems eating. And that time, I remember when I was in hospital, I basically didn't really say anything. 
So they didn't even know that um didn't even know that I had lost my accent at that time. So they just thought that maybe this was just who I was, but I just didn't say anything. I just left everything to my family and to Ross. Was it that you couldn't speak or was it such bad aphasia or no, it I think it was basically just <laughs> I think I was just in shock. Mm. And when you're in shock, you just observe. For me, I was just observing and basically trying to um because I was obviously the cross busting medication was actually quite painful. I was just trying to to think I was somewhere else. I didn't feel the pain, but I just didn't want to say anything. I was just I just couldn't bring myself to say anything. I was almost like it was basically shock. So you still have some memories from that time, Joy? I have memories of everything. At one point, they gave me a compression. They were supposed to give me compression socks after they did the MRI scan. And they forgot. I was just pointing out. I was like, socks, socks. <laughs> and they, they, had to, they went and got it, but nobody remembered. So I was remembering a lot of these things. I even remembered when I was having physio. So they were it was interesting. This is how uh, Africans are like. I'm in the physio room, and there's the uh, the physiotherapist and other physio physios because they are treating other patients, and they're having a chat about um about uh, the hospital, and the fact that they're being underpaid. And I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> "Hang on, I've just had a stroke. Can you like talk about this later on?" <laughs> Goodness. Oh, so I mean. There had to be some quite big decisions for both of you to be made, because obviously you're now living over here in the UK. How did that come about? And, you know, Ross, you mentioned you were thinking ahead, you know, even when it was happening. What? How did that all come together? Yeah, I think that the, so Joy was in the hospital, I think it was five or six nights. And then the discharge day came as a little bit of a surprise because Joy was still pretty immobile and needed help you know, going to the bathroom, things like that. But on his, on the morning rounds, the, the consultant said, right, that's it, you can go home. And that was kind of a little bit of panic set in because, you know, a different phase of the recovery. But um, that was a little bit terrifying because, you know, when you're in the hospital, you know, although they might take a little bit of time to arrive, there is literally a red button on the wall that you can press in case of emergencies. So kind of being, you know, sent home without any... Uh, any backstop that was a little bit a little bit scary um and, and also just like the suitability of joy's apartment for somebody you know who's quite immobile you know things like bathrooms and showers and all these things so there was a, a bit of scrabbling around to try and get ready from that perspective um what else also uh, there was no um uh, occupational therapist or even speech therapist so basically ross had to basically Put, help me with everything until I was able to do it myself, even brush my teeth. Nobody taught me how to do it. Yeah, on, on discharge, there was literally nothing. It was like, right, cheerio, bye. That, that was that was kind of it. Nobody prepared us for the challenges that lay ahead. It was ahead. only like a week, I think two weeks later, where we got to see a dietitian about my swallowing problems, how she recommended that I should have um, blended food and stuff like that. But um, it was actually quite... Um, it's not like here where you have a special um, companies that actually provide such meals. We had to actually do everything ourselves and it was actually quite difficult to manage that. So there was no, there's no kind of community team like we would get over here? No, nothing. There isn't even a, a, a stroke association, nothing. 
no charity no charities to help my goodness you're really highlighting some of those um you know real differences in in level of healthcare around the world and in different places and i think often we forget how lucky we are here um with so many facilities even though it doesn't always feel like that and sometimes it feels that they're better in some places and some parts of of the uk than others um but still i think we do often forget how uh, many other places around the world don't have the same level of health care that we we can enjoy. Um, and even in Tanzania, with you saying with the help in the hospital that you received, there will be many places where that is equally not accessible. Um, but I'm, I'm intrigued with um, you saying about not having that rehab when you went home. How long were you in Tanzania for? And have you been able to access any rehab on, on coming back? We had a physical therapy, which we had to pay for. I had to pay for, but there was no occupational therapy, just physical. Okay. Yeah, I think that, that was, I mean, that was probably the only outpatient care you really got, but that that was organised privately, as Joyce said. And like Joyce Fizu, he was a lovely, lovely guy, um, very empathetic, but he, uh, how to politely say, he had a limited repertoire of exercises that he would give Joy. So it was basically the exact same exercises, I think, four times a week. So it was mind-numbingly boring for Joy. So quite quickly, Joy was looking up rehab exercises on the internet and teaching him and kind of expanding his his skill set by showing him new exercises for stroke patients. Because the thing is, I didn't want to just, I didn't want to just um, uh, get better. I wanted to go back to doing the things I was doing before because for over uh, 14 years, I used to kickbox. And I wanted to be able to go back to doing that. And I was very good at other sports as well. I just wanted to go back to do that as well. Also, there was no, um, there was no treatment for my mental state. Um, because uh, they said that uh, therapy is not the African way. Yeah, we, we went to see the consultant. I think it was maybe three or four weeks after Joy's stroke. And during the consultation, Joy you know, got very upset. You know, she was very down, very depressed. And, you know, I, I said to the consultant, you know, is there anything you can do, anything we can do to help with Joy's mental state? Maybe some, I don't know, talking therapies. And he said, no. And I kind of asked, I pushed again, asked again, and he got quite angry with me. And he, as exactly as Joy said, he said to me, no, that's not the African way. But it was, you know, she was clearly distressed and, you know, not in a good frame of mind. But, you know, not even the consultant was was interested, really. And that was another thing that we had to source um, privately. Um, so like psychiatric care in Tanzania, um, which is pretty thin on the ground. You know, anything mental health. Um, you know, it's still very taboo in Tanzania and parts of Africa. And you know, I mean, even in, in, I would say in, in this part of the world, in the UK, um, until very recently, you know, mental health was very much a taboo subject, but it still very much is in, in Tanzania. So finding a practitioner was quite challenging, um, but we did find one who was okay. Um, mm. But interestingly, going back to Joy being conscious during the stroke itself, one of the things that the um, the therapist um, identified was that Joy was probably suffering from uh, PTSD, from those memories of seeing herself in the mirror. And that um, was a special treatment that Joy underwent to help with those experiences, which did actually help. It was EMDR. 
Yeah. Mm. That did seem to help. And that was the mm. only um, therapist in Tan the whole of Tanzania who practiced that. So we were very lucky. Mm. Well, I think there's so much there that we're, we're going to pick up in future podcasts as well. But it's really interesting to hear about that treatment. And I don't know much about EMDR, actually. Mm. Can I ask you something, Julia? You said mm. that your husband was in you and your husband were in uh, Nigeria when it happened when he had a stroke yes how did people react to his stroke especially in Nigeria well he was in a coma quite quickly um but yes this is, when you were talking about um the food actually when Hector was in a coma someone a nurse tried to administer tablets pills into his mouth which I actually took out of his mouth because obviously saw that as a, as a risk for choking. Um, but also he was um, having muscle spasms and his, his arm was tied to the bed to try and, and stop that. So yes, and, and also oxygen was a problem. He didn't receive any oxygen um, for, for quite a while. So it was a very different you know, picture of care there. What did uh, his uh, family members or people around him say about what caused the stroke? In terms of what caused the stroke, we don't know. Um, it might have been um, high blood pressure, um, but yes. The reason why I was asking is because um, when I was in the hospital, my uh, cousin came to visit me and she said, uh, at that time I was obviously very confused and I said, and she said, Joy, who did this to you? And I was like, what do you mean? I said, who did this to you? meaning they thought that maybe I'd been hexed or something. So that was what I was trying okay. to get at, whether there was something similar in Nigeria. I think there are those beliefs in Nigeria. I wouldn't say um, with my husband's family. Um, but yes, I do know that there are certain people or certain, you know, beliefs that are held like that, certainly. Yes. And also, I think there's um, many places where there's a taboo about disability as well. And so people who are left with um, acquired disabilities and impairments, it can be very difficult for them. But again, I, I think that raising awareness, it's interesting you're saying about there not being a stroke association, because I know that um, having worked for Headway, I was really interested in looking at whether there are any headways in, in different parts of Africa, particularly. I know that there's a headway in South Africa, um, but I, it, you know, I think there's such a, a gap for some of that education. Um, and also some of the simple therapies that you're, you're, you were able to access on the internet. Um, you know, when I was thinking about the elastic bands, you know, that you use for stretching and things, that actually it's not necessarily just linked to resources. Um, it's not necessarily all the high expensive kit that's needed, is it, for some simple rehab that could take place? Yeah, definitely. I've seen some very ingenious uh, homemade gyms in uh, Tanzania, you know, made from car parts and all sorts of things. So, yeah, there's absolutely no reason that um couldn't do the same for, for rehab, for sure. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
But uh, being in Tanzania, it was uh, whenever we, because we sometimes used to go out for a walk because I really wanted to, I, I didn't like the idea of just being indoors. So when we'd go outside, at the beginning I was in a wheelchair and people would just stare at me. And even when I was walking later on, they would still stare at me and I found that quite um, annoying really. But just to yeah. understand, I was like, what's wrong? I mean, because obviously I was educated here and I've seen people who were walking around with different disabilities and it just didn't faze me. But in Tanzania, obviously it's still something that's uh, frowned upon, especially if there are people walking around in certain areas. It sounds like you came up with quite a lot of challenges while you were in Tanzania for, you know, emotionally, physically, and obviously from the community point of view as well. Was that what prompted your decision to relocate? Yes. I think, you know, there's a number of things. We definitely felt that Joy could be getting much better support. Um, and also we kind of felt that, you know, whilst Joy didn't have any underlying medical conditions, we were still kind of keen to maybe understand a bit more about why the stroke happened. But, you know, there just wasn't really any way of finding that out in Tanzania. Um and yeah, we were we were both we were both struggling, kind of mentally, just kind of exhausted, and just both of us requiring a bit more support structure around us. So that's really what prompted prompted the move. But the move itself was actually quite tricky because at the time this was March twenty twenty one for COVID. So um, we actually had to do a um, come back via Kenya, ten days in Kenya. And then we couldn't come straight back to Scotland. So we had to go to England, hire a car, then drive across the border into Scotland. So it was a kind of a, a tricky, sneaky way that we got back to, to Edinburgh. And I think we arrived in Edinburgh early April, I think it was. So huge changes for, for both of you after that very long journey and those massive decisions to move to Edinburgh. Um, and you're now living together in Scotland. We are in Edinburgh, yeah. And... Ross, it sounds like you were such an amazing support with, you know, joining Tanzania and then and obviously now. How have you taken on those responsibilities? How have you found them and how has it altered kind of the relationship, I suppose? Uh, yeah, it's um, kind of been through all the all, all the emotions, you know, sort of confusion, anger, denial, uh, everything in between. Um, been some quite terrifying moments I think one one moment that um uh, sort of I, I remember has been quite terrifying at the time and it was we've maybe been out of the hospital for maybe two or three weeks and I, I asked Joy to um uh, spell a word and like she couldn't and then, and then I realized my gosh she'd forgotten the alphabet like she completely forgotten the whole alphabet so there's like little things like that happening where you think oh my goodness like what you know, what else has how else has it affected her that I don't know yet? So in the early days there was a few moments like that. Um, but I think I don't know if it's just a kind of a, a blokey thing, but I kind of kicked into a practical mode, right? What you know, what needs to be done in the next hour, the next day, and just kind of like literally taking it initially an hour at a time, day at a time, and like muddling through because in those early days. You know, there was certainly no, as I said, you know, no no support, there was no instruction manual. It was really just kind of doing everything on instinct or anything you can find on, like some of the Stroke Association websites were really good, like the UK one was really good, uh, the USA one was really good. Um, 
so yeah, it was just kind of like muddling through and just kind of just being determined to try not to kind of dwell too long on you know what could be perceived as a bit of a mountain ahead um and just kind of just take it a step at a time really and presumably you'd massively put your life on and work on hold as well i did yeah um yeah i, I mean I, I completely stopped working for i think it was about six months actually um uh and then um sort of gradually eased myself back in once we got back to back to the uk um I'm one of the co-founders of my business, so I was quite fortunate in that um, you know, I maybe got a little bit more leeway than some people would from their from their employers. But having said that, my my colleagues, my co-founders were all, you know, fantastic, very supportive and helpful. I think the thing for me was um even though I was recovering, I was still able to see Ross and see him struggling. And that's that really upset me because I couldn't do anything. And that's what for me was just I just couldn't. I wish I could have. I wish I could have um, maybe uh, cloned myself so I could have helped him. But it was just hard seeing him do all these things, mm. especially since I was so independent at the beginning. Then suddenly he had to do everything. It just really broke me. How is that for you now? I think now Ross says sometimes when I can do something, he's like, "Oh, so now I'm, I've been relegated <laughs> because now he finds I can do so many things on my yeah. own, <laughs> except for working." <laughs> yeah. yeah. It has, like, in all seriousness, it is quite a, as part of the recovery, because, like, my instinct was always to do, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that. But that's not always the right thing for somebody who's recovering from a stroke, because they do want to regain their, their independence. So it took a bit of a while of trying to get that balance right and not kind of, you know, upsetting Joy or, like, upsetting myself because she doesn't want me to do that anymore. So... It's kind of a, you've got to kind of like find the right line between, uh, you know, letting her have her independence. Like even when we were back in Edinburgh, letting Joy like walk literally across the road to the supermarket. You know, I was probably like a, a parent like watching their kid go off to school for the first time by themselves. You know, I was sitting in the flat anxious, but, um, you know, it's yeah. lots of moments like that. And you'd always say like, make sure you check the road before you cross. And I'm like, yes, daddy. <laughs> I know, but you do, you do. I mean, I remember that with, with my husband the first time he kind of went to pick the kids up or, you know, it is the whole crossing the road because he had quite bad visual issues as well and, you know, and lots of processing and it was like, hope you come back, but you kind of just have to let them go, <laughs> let, let you go. And, you know, and that's the best way to learn and to build on and to become more independent. Remember that time when, uh, when there was a really bad, uh, was it a storm or something? Yeah, Joy had been to the hairdressers and it was like really windy outside, like proper stormy. And I said to her, you know, when you're finished, call me, I'll come and pick you up. And I was like watching, like keeping an eye on my watch, it was getting longer and longer. Then I hear the key in the lock and it was Joy having walked back through the storm by herself. And I, was, I couldn't believe it. You know, I thought she was going to get blown away. <laughs> So, um, Joy, you seem to be someone that just loves still embracing life and taking kind of positive risks. Yes. Um, so what kind of, I guess, how has your journey progressed? What things did you find difficult that you now can do? And I know recently you um, did a speech at Glasgow University. I think for me, the actual physical side is not a problem because um, I've always been, obviously... 
had an aesthetic background. So, and I had a lot of discipline in that. So I've used that to help me with my re physical recovery. But the emotional part is the part that's quite difficult for me. And it still is. I've seen quite a few therapists and I still hasn't reached, I still haven't been able to find out, to get some peace, but I'm still researching on that area. What part of that do you struggle with? Let me talk about it. Yeah. Basically, the support from certain individuals like our relatives, things like that. Yeah, I think mainly down to cultural reasons, but perhaps yes. one or two other reasons. Um, some members of Joy's family have not been terribly understanding or accepting of what's happened to Joy, which and has made, made recovery hard. Especially when you're the person who was there for everyone and then suddenly just they just don't understand. That just makes it really difficult. But so that's but I really like talking a lot about my recovery in general and basically trying to motivate other stroke survivors as well. And that's why when I went to Glasgow, I wanted people to know that it can happen to anyone at any time. And also a lot of people think it's mainly the physical side, but it's mainly but it really affects your emotional side because you lose your identity and you lose your confidence, all these things that people don't really see. It's the hidden disabilities that people don't see that really need more, need people to shed more light on. And that's that, yeah, that's a lot of what we're trying to do with the this podcast as well, because you know, we've both got experience with our husbands and they do struggle emotionally. We certainly Paul, my husband, you know, he's um, so frustrated about things that he can't do or the person that he used to be. Um, and and it is widening that awareness out to other people as well and having that understanding. Um, and the more knowledge you can give to people, uh, the more understanding people can be. It's funny how it took a stroke for me to start reading so much more. I mean, I used to read for work, but it was mainly like uh, legal stuff, but now I'm just trying to absorb everything about the stroke rehab, about finding myself, about the emotional side, all these things. So that's what I do when I'm not uh, doing the admin work and also walking around and doing the physical side. I also find it difficult balancing the, all those things because it's so much to do and I just think there's not enough time sometimes. <laughs> I imagine you, Joy, as someone who never has enough time in the day for all the yes. things that you want to do. Um, but just taking you back a bit to some of the things that you touched on there about difficulties with acceptance in you and some of the changes that you have had to face post-stroke and the relationships within mm. the family and the cultural context of that. Yeah. I think there's so much more to talk about there. And I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to talk about, isn't it? But I would really love to talk to to you more about, and maybe we can, um, you know, we can have another conversation about that on the podcast mm -hmm. as well, and think carefully about how we might do that, because yeah. I think that could really help a lot of people too. Um, but certainly, it seems that you are someone that had a lot of people relying on you and family, and I'm sure that uh, you know that's that's a very stressful position to be in anyway, isn't it? Without all of the other things that you um, were doing in your life at the time as well you know Julia uh, a month after my stroke I actually got someone who tried to get me to see a client and I was like don't you know that I have a, I've had a stroke and they just didn't want to understand what it was like yeah 
They just yeah. thought that maybe I had like malaria or something like that. Yeah. It was very frustrating at the beginning, trying to make people understand when you're trying to recover. Yes. And when other people's livelihoods are so tied to yours, yes. I would imagine that there was much, much pressure on you at that time. There was another ordeal that I guess we both had to deal with when we came back from the UK. And it was when, because we'd come from Tanzania, you know, Joy had a long term visa, but because she entered the country on a particular type of visa, it um, for long and complicated reasons, it basically meant that the Home Office wanted her to leave the country. So we had to appeal. Obviously, you know, she'd had a stroke and there was various other conditions, but it, it, it took an appeal. We had to go to court in Glasgow in front of a judge. Uh, eventually, we did win, thankfully, but that took a year and that was uh, pretty stressful, hang having that hangover mm -hmm. uh, joy as well as having mm -hmm. to contend with all the other things. Can I just say what a fabulous couple you are? It's just amazing. Just looking at you both on the screen. I'm sorry we're not in the same room, um, but it, it's just amazing to meet you and to hear about all of these challenges that you have faced. Um, some that that really resonate with me as well. And I just think it's it's great to see you sitting side by side and you know, both obviously. <laughs> with each other enjoying each other both actually back at work and and you know having made a, a new life for yourselves or a different life and it's it's wonderful it really is thank you thank you very it really much. is and um, i mean joy how has ross's help been for you over the you know the last few years how would you kind of describe how his help has enabled you to progress well, Ross has been helping me from ever since we started, ever since we started dating. Because <laughs> I've had so many problems with work and he's always been there to help me with that, especially when <laughs> I've had clients and I, or, and I just like lost my cool or lost my temper. So he's always been there from the beginning with everything. And so, in, and it's funny because uh, when we had the, um, when we had the uh, anniversary party, he said to me that uh, I'll, be, I'll be there for, I'll, I'll always have your back. And I just didn't believe it. I just thought maybe he was just saying that. And then 10 days later, this happened. And I just didn't, I just couldn't believe it. The way he just uh, picked up everything and just went on and just took over. I just, I just, every day, I just think my lucky stars how to have him in my life. I don't know where I would be without him. So I'm getting a bit emotional there. <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. And how about Ross? How about you? Um, the same with Joy. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't think twice about stepping in and doing doing what I did. You know, I kind of felt it was. You know, of course, I was going to do it. You know, it was ever in any in any doubt, and it was. I don't know. Like I said before, it's kind of kicked into to practical mode. Um, and like to be honest, that's been the easy. Part, you know, like you know, taking joy places or you know, arranging doctor's appointments or whatever, whatever it is. But to go back to what Joy was saying, the kind of the emotional part that, as a carer, that I, by far I find that that's the hardest part to support because, like, I really feel like I'm quite often going blind there because you know, not so much as known about it. Joy herself doesn't know sometimes what might be going on or what's affecting her, so. That, that's always been the trickiest part is in the recovery, you know, the kind of physically being there and offering support and doing stuff quite easy, 
but you know just knowing emotionally how to give the right support that's the, the, the bit that I find the hardest um, a lot of the time. But I like the fact that you recognize that I needed time to rest because some people thought that maybe I was being lazy and I actually had fatigue but people just didn't understand that but you were willing to understand and you actually was trying sometimes to actually tell people that you needed time to rest mm. and I really appreciate Your fatigue that. is so draining isn't it do you have any support Ross where where do you get your support from obviously mm-hmm. from joy but anywhere joy, else yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah I would say like from like to a degree like friends and family you know some people are quite understanding and you know like they're always there to kind of uh listen to me um but you know even with a you know a good network of friends it can still be a you know at times a pretty lonely like tricky place you know um and you know like there's certainly been tough tough moments you know there was times when um you know I was trying to get back into my work but like just just couldn't I was just not in the right mindset so um you know it's it's been like bumpy for both of us I would say mm-hmm. um it's not it's not it's not an easy easy job being a carer as I'm mm-hmm. sure you guys are both well aware you know it's it's not easy there are little challenges every day isn't it yeah I would say so that's why when I saw about your podcast I was like I really need to get on this because I really really do um really cherish um carers I think they just I think they uh the unsung heroes and they just need they need more attention and people really need to acknowledge that they play not about the the stroke survivor it's about the carers because without you we wouldn't be here you do so much for us well thank you joy I think that that's um that's that's wonderful to hear but I also know that without your own grit and determination you wouldn't be where you are either and that's how how I feel about Hector too that actually yes well uh, what's what's fabulous as well is seeing the partnership and how you're both supporting each other so that's wonderful thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story it really has been amazing and I think that our listeners will get so much from it and I really hope we can have another conversation as well because I think there's so much more to talk about Thank you. Absolutely. And before you go, what are some of the ways that you guys do to ensure that you do have a good day? I think something that we did quite early on, even if it it wasn't a good day, we would always put three sticky notes on a wall, things that like we were kind of grateful for. So it became a over time a wall filled with stickies and some of it could be like really stupid things. But it'd be like just little things that happened on that day that it would be a bit of gratitude for. And it could be like there was all sorts of silly things, you know, like Ross did a really great job of brushing my teeth today or just like whatever, things like that. Um, and that, that I think, really helped just because it was part of a routine at the end of the day would generally put a smile on your face. Yes. But when you look back at it it just it showed progress which was like super important as well and for me I really appreciated when you used to read to me because nobody actually read to me as a child so at night before I used to go to bed you would actually read to me until I was able to go to sleep I put on voices and everything oh Mm. my god that's so special I love that (laughs) and the whole gratitude thing is so important Uh, Julia and I were talking about this earlier in the year and I've 
now got a gratitude. I mean, I try and do it daily because I think it's so, so important. But I've now put a gratitude jar in the home where the kids, my husband and myself can all contribute to it so that we can look back on it um, every now and then and understand that gratitude and coming from that place is such an important place to be. And for me, sometimes when I think Ross has had a stressful day, I'll just say, okay, we're going for a walk. Even if it's just a 10 minute walk, we just, I just want him to get out of the house and just get some fresh air or just uh, say something. That's what we try and do a lot of. And we also try and go to um, um, events, limited events, and just try and lead a normal life as much as we can. Because I really wanted to make sure that um, he's not very isolated. So sometimes I will, there was a time I actually told him, I need you to go away for like four days, just leave me. He was like, I can't, I was like, no, leave, you have to go. You have to go on your own. I don't care where you go, just go. You need some time alone. I think that's quite important as well to give the carer some time off. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it seems that you both have a very deep understanding of, of each other's needs and, and individually as well as together, which I think is important. Having that empathy towards each other and understanding each other's situation is actually really fundamental. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's been such a joy <laughs> to speak to you guys. Um, and let's stay connected as well, because um, I think, yeah, the more we keep connected and keep talking about these experiences as well is really important to hopefully get you on again at some point um so thank you so much for joining us you're welcome thanks guys thank you for having thank us. you you've been listening to on a good day thank you so much we are a brand new podcast so if you found this useful please help us spread the word by sharing on all your socials tag us follow us we're on instagram on a good dot day twitter on a good underscore day and on facebook too all the details are in the show notes do subscribe if you haven't already to make sure you don't miss an episode and please leave us a five star rating and review to make sure that others can find this podcast that would really make our day until next time you have a really good day Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.